Hello, I'm Ian Griggs, Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly. Welcome to the second episode of the Wind Power Podcast. Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine is a tragedy which has claimed the lives of thousands of civilians and soldiers, as well as driving millions from their homes to become refugees. But as we count the daily cost in human suffering, there is also a sense that the war has achieved what the slower-moving crisis of climate change could not, by galvanising policymakers towards a swifter transition to renewable energy. As countries across Europe pledge to end their long-standing reliance on Russian fossil fuel imports, the notion of moving more swiftly towards energy security has taken centre stage. But is this a moment in time, or will we come to view this point in history as a real turning point in the transition to clean energy? To explore these issues, in this episode, I speak to one of the biggest turbine manufacturers in the world, a wind farm developer and a European policymaker. We talked about how we can achieve energy transition quickly, why the wind industry must win the hearts and minds of the public, and about what one interviewee describes as the absurd theatre of the rapidly widening gap between renewable targets and what is actually happening on the ground. First up, I spoke to turbine manufacturer Vestas. I'm speaking to Morten Duerholm, who is the Group Senior Vice President of Global Marketing Communications, Sustainability and Public Affairs at Vestas. Hi, Morten. Hi. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is obviously first and foremost a human tragedy on a colossal scale. Do you think it's made uh, European policymakers wake up to the need for a faster transition to renewables? I think it's um, it's a sad fact that uh, it probably uh, takes a catastrophe uh, and a horrific war like this uh, for European policymakers to, to truly wake up to the need for the energy transition to happen. Um, they seem to be now uh, fast forwarding all those uh, policies that we have been asking for for so many years based on another crisis, the climate crisis. Perhaps this notion of energy security can do for the energy transition what the climate crisis uh, failed to do, namely radically speed up the transition to a, a sustainable energy sector. Amidst all this tragedy, uh, I see some hope that uh, everyone's now waking up to the necessity of the, uh, the green energy transition. Do you think this is a moment which could possibly be forgotten in three months' time by European policymakers who go back to other things? Or is this a genuine turning point where we look at renewables in a completely different way? I want to, to hope that this is the genuine turning point. Um, but we have to see what happens on the ground because we have seen policymakers now increasingly over the, the last couple of years uh, raising ambition levels on renewable build-out, increasing targets quite significantly. We saw that not least uh, in the last COP in, in Glasgow. Um, and it's become sort of an, and has become sort of an absurd theater where the gap between what policymakers are saying they want to do in terms of building out renewables and transitioning, uh, the gap to the, what's actually happening on the ground just becomes larger and larger. Uh, to a point where, you know, it's almost comical. Not nearly enough is happening on the ground, right? We're not getting nearly the build-out that we need in order to just come close 
to these ambition levels that European policymakers are saying they, they have. I think my own country, Denmark, is a very good case. We have a 70% before the energy security discussion here. We, ha- we have a 70% uh, CO2 reduction target by 2030. And we are going to need an enormous amount of green electrons to get to that target. But last year, guess what? In 2021, three turbines were sold in Denmark. Three. Three turbines. You know, it's, it's an absurd theater because nothing is happening on the ground. And, and you see that pattern in many, many European countries where uh, reality just does not meet uh, the ambition level that these policymakers are so keen to, uh, to formulate. And if we, if we start talking about a turning point, then I need to see something happening on the ground. Because now it's all about energy security, right? It's all about uh, energy independence. Uh, and if that can't change things on the ground, then I'm really starting to get worried. I could, I could imagine why as well. I mean, there's reports of uh, people in Germany starting to call renewable energy freedom energy. You know, how can the wind industry kind of capitalize on public opinion, even, you know, setting aside policymakers for a moment? How can they capitalize on public opinion uh, towards renewables going forward? How can the wind industry capture that public mood? We have three crises simultaneously going on right now, right? We have an energy independence situation where we need to free ourselves from gas and uh, and imported uh, fossil fuels. We have had for decades now a real climate crisis. And then we have exploding electricity bills uh, amongst consumers. And guess what? Our product and what we deliver can simultaneously solve all those three challenges, right? So if that's not a winning argument, and if we can't, as an industry in the wind industry, get that message across, then, I mean, then we really need to step up the game and start shouting a little bit more and not hiding. We have the best arguments in the world. And of course, we are talking about infrastructure. There's always going to be some people that are not annoyed about that. But the vast majorities of the populations in Europe, they want this quite right. How do you do that? How do you become more assertive as a whole sector in sort of making your case, stating your case? Do you go direct to the public as well as to policymakers? Do you need to kind of put yourself out there more on a public level? I mean, do people know in Europe who Vestas is and what you do? Yes, I think it's about time that we speak with a louder voice. Of course, we need to continue speaking to policymakers and let them understand that if they want to realize these ambitions and get the benefits of this technology, then they have to remove all these obstacles that they put in our way. In enormous long permitting time, you know, administrative hurdles that are just completely out of bound. And we have a grid infrastructure that needs to be built out. We have new technologies that needs to come in and balance green energy system. There are so many things that we need to get done that is not happening right now. So policymakers, of course, need to step up the game. We have, they have a good hand now in terms of arguing for renewable energy. They have especially good hand when we talk about energy independence. So let's continue to be loud towards the policymakers. But yes, we also as an industry need to, to talk broader to the public and make them understand that if they want this freedom energy, then there is an infrastructure build out needed and uh, and it is going to be uh, a difficult discussion because there's going to be people that are annoyed by that 
But there's just no other way. We have to make the public have an honest conversation with the public that the only way to get to the targets that we all agree we need to go to is going to take some infrastructure in, in uh, both on land, on sea, both wind and solar, uh, grid build out, storage solutions, PTX, everything, you know, has to be built out uh, for this to happen. And of course, those things that you mentioned, those huge infrastructure investments, they're going to cost money. And eventually that bill will trickle down to individuals in, living in, in member states who will perhaps have to pay more for it in some way. Or, you know, do, do you have to make that argument? No, I disagree. We are not a sector that lacks financial solutions here. I mean, there's so much money that wants to be invested in our sector. This is not about consumers having to spend a whole lot of money. On the contrary, you know, when these turbines are spinning, the electricity bills will go down. Uh, so this is not about consumers having to spend a lot of money. This is about getting projects. And, and to get projects, we need to remove permitting problems and so forth, right? So it's not a money discussion. It's, it's an administrative discussion. Where are those holdups most acute? Would you say it's more acute in some member states than in others, for, for instance? Uh, it's, a, it's a problem across the board. It's everything from a lack of uh, staffing in the administrative body that needs to process these projects to, you know, overcomplicated uh, uh, permitting regimes where you have to go through uh, 20, 30 steps sometimes just to get to, uh, to an approval of a project, right? It's just about slimming down the processes and then hire qualified staff in these departments. You know, it's simple stuff like that. I think that's actually the good message we have here. It's not a huge problem we have to overcome. It's actually fairly concrete, practical, simple stuff that governments need to start looking at. Europe feels galvanized now. If, do you worry about that without the crisis that Europe will, some of the member states won't be quite as galvanized to move as quickly? The fact of the matter is that um, we were in a deep, deep and still are in a deep, deep climate crisis. And that hasn't gone anywhere, right? Uh, they still have to do this. You know, the, there is no other way around it. It's not a question of if we do it. it we just have to do it. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to be hitting the Paris Agreement targets. And we, we're not going to no, no near the 2.0 degree scenario, right? We have to do this. It's just a matter of how we do it and how fast we can do it. I'll be uh, really disappointed if, if uh, a crisis like this can't spur action and real action this time around. I really, really hope that this is the moment uh, that we're going to be looking back at and saying, this is where the transition really started. I, I want to see a boom in this market now. I want to see, uh, you know, what's happening on the ground. And, you know, these are the signals we need to see. As a public affairs professional, I mean, part of your role involves obviously interacting with policymakers and regulators, etc. Do you sense a greater willingness among decision makers to have those key meetings with you, to hear the industry's concerns, and then to move forward at greater speed uh, to install more wind uh, across Europe. Are you getting better meetings, frankly? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I've never seen such activism <laughs> among policymaker circles and regulators as I've seen right now. And I've been in this business for 15 years. Uh, I've never seen anything like this. It's like a flood of, uh, of, of just urgency uh, meetings and uh, and uh, discussions now on, on how do we do this and how do we do this super fast. You know, I take that as a sign that there's some real willingness and some real political momentum behind driving the transition forward. So it's going to be interesting to see where this all lands, but I think there are, there are reasons to be hopeful that this really marks a turning point.
do you think your colleagues across the wind industry are going to be like you attempting to seize the political mood of the moment and try and sort of secure their place in Europe's energy future? I think it's unavoidable that with all these um, big packages, uh, regulatory packages that government after government are now releasing and the commission as well, that everyone, uh, the investors are seeing this as clear signals that there is a, a real commitment this time around. Uh, and now it's the time to really speed up the build out. Um, but of course, they're going to be hit by the same problems uh, that everyone else as uh, we've been dealing with for so many years that getting a project approved somewhere is, is a headache uh, beyond belief. And we're also facing a problem that uh, as an industry, we've probably uh, not helped ourselves by constantly and over the last decade or so talked about levelized cost of energy and how get the prices down, 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 down. And it's like a, a race to the bottom type of discussion. Uh, and I think part of what we as a wind industry needs to do now is say there's also a value to a green electron. So maybe we shouldn't be talking about the green electrons as they are free. You know, an ever increasing uh, downward spiral levelized cost of energy perhaps is not the interest of the industry. We also make, need to make sure the industry is sustainable financially. And right now, as big parts of the value chain here is not profitable. Uh, and so, so we have to talk about value of energy now uh, because it's real value we provide. We provide energy independence, solutions to the climate crisis and lower electricity bills. Tell me about a value. Uh, you know, you can't beat that. Why should that be free? I think, as you say, you've almost got to kind of not only target those who would be buying your 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 technology and the and the policymakers, but I think you've got to surely you've got to tell the public that as well that there is real value in what in what you're doing, and actually it's it's worth investors and all your um, uh, competitors create and improve this technology as time goes on. Yes, because there's another side to this, right? We're talking about energy independence from you know foreign gas, but if the all the manufacturing capacity in the renewable sector moves to Asia, then we haven't made ourselves uh, independent because the prices have become so ridiculously low that you know a manufacturing uh, hop in Europe is no longer sustainable. And so there is another energy independence discussion on top of all of this. Um, we already in Europe lost the solar industry to China. You know, all solar manufacture happens in China now. Uh, and we have to be really careful that we don't do the same with the wind industry. And, and the fact is that we have lost probably between 60 to 70,000 jobs in the wind sector in Europe over the last couple of years. And if we are to, to save the, the manufacturing and the innovation and all that in Europe, uh, then we also need to ensure that uh, the auction prices coming out of the European projects uh, are at a level that can sustain this industry. Uh, so that's what I mean. We have to start talking about the value. Also, the value of the 300,000 jobs and the value of, of having uh, our own means to produce our green electrons and the, and the facilities and manufacturing kits that needs to go uh, and be produced in Europe as well. Those green collar jobs, essentially, that you're talking about, how is that such a difficult argument for, for policymakers? Because if they're getting not only a solution to climate change, not only a solution to energy security, but also homegrown jobs for their citizens. I mean, what's not to like about that? Surely you have to kind of convince them that these jobs must remain uh, in Europe and that the green technology jobs are part of the new economy that they want to build. Exactly. But if you if you base your auction winning criteria on price only, then you're going to be in that situation, right? Because you're going to have a fierce competition among the developers and utilities and the energy companies that bids for these auctions. And if price is the only criteria for, for winning bid, 
then you're not going to leave room for, for value to sustain a European manufacturing base. So we have to rethink from a European level the way we organize these auctions and then potentially thinking about a floor price here so you don't bid yourself uh, too low. And I know that's that's tricky for policymakers to uh, to talk about, but I think as an industry, we have to start talking about that. Germany has announced 30 billion euros for its transition. Would you like to see similar policies coming through in every member state and more besides? I think the guidelines coming out of the commission, I think every every member state should take a real good look at those. It is about removing the obstacles in the planning regulations, and we can't allow one citizen to derail the energy transition. It does not work, right? We're in three simultaneous crises here, and just as we saw how governments could react uh, when we when we were in the midst of the pandemic crisis, yes, we probably need to have a little bit more of national government intervention here to make sure that these planning regimes are not obstacles for the green transition. And I'm not saying that we as an industry should just completely overwrite that people have concerns. We need to be in dialogue and we need to also, from a technology point of view, make this infrastructure as uh, positive as possible uh, for the people that, that lives around them. So don't get me wrong, but uh, we, we, I think we need to start talking with governments about if they want to achieve these targets, then uh, potentially leaving it uh, you know, decentralized to municipalities to make decisions probably is not going to work. We'll return to Morton later to hear what he thinks the cost of failure on energy transition might be. But next, I spoke to the wind farm developer, Achiona, about what the company wants to see from policymakers for the switch to renewables to become a reality, as well as how the war is directly affecting its business. Uh, Luis Martí, uh, Director of Public Policy and Regulation in Acciona. Thank you very much for joining me, uh, Luis. Um, so I want to talk to you about uh, the situation in Ukraine and how that has changed our view of the transition to uh, renewables. Do you think it has made European policymakers wake up to the need for a faster transition to renewables? Obviously, it has impacted uh, the European landscape in many different ways, and this is very clearly one of the most important the higher level of urgency on the part of European policymakers, I think, is very, very clear in recent days and weeks. Um, we are now receiving news of uh, the German shift as regards renewables and their substantial acceleration, yeah. trying to triple or even quadruple their installed renewable capacity uh, in just eight years, which is really a very uh, tall order. Yes. Um, so this is clearly happening. It is very good that, that it is happening. It is happening for the wrong reasons, unfortunately, but um, in any case, we should uh, welcome it, even in these very tragic circumstances. And we should also, I mean, the level of urgency is now very clear because the war is raging and we have all these human catastrophes coming to our newspapers practically every day. But we should be vigilant in the future because that urgency may decay if, if uh, circumstances change as regards yes. the situation in Ukraine. Yes. Um, and what this crisis has shown us is that this situation really is there. Uh, and uh, even if there is a sudden shift in the Russian position, for example, 
Uh, this has happened, and we should never forget that it can happen again. And I think this is the main this is the main concern. Yes. Climate change also has been the main driver up to now. Security of supply was mentioned and was part of the argument, but it wasn't really the main argument, and now it very clearly is the main argument. What must European decision makers, or indeed at a member state level, what must they, what they do? to make energy uh, transition and quick transition a reality. What do you want to see them do? Okay. One very important issue is to manage the crisis properly. This is obviously a, a temporary crisis in yes. many different ways, even yes. if it has a permanent impact, as I was saying before. This needs to be properly managed so that it doesn't erode long-term incentives for renewable deployment, and this is very important. I think we at the industry um, understand that uh, such high energy prices are uh, a massive challenge politically and mm. usually something needs to be done. Yes. Permitting is extremely important. This is probably the binding constraint right now on mm. renewable mm. investment. Uh, this is subject to complex local and regional dynamics. Yes. In many cases, the very high priority on the side of the Commission and on the side of central governments is not filtering through to local and regional governments. Mm -hmm. And therefore, their policy is not reflecting the substantial public interest in a quick deployment of renewables, and we really need to deal with this. In your opinion, uh, Lewis, what's the potential cost to Europe and its citizens if politicians don't back up their words with firm action? What's the cost to us? Well, I think the le we shouldn't underestimate the level of political frustration that may be created if we don't seize this opportunity. This is clearly a foundational moment for the European Union. If this moment is not Do you seized, mean the citizens when you're talking yeah, about that at yeah. the ground level? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they are looking now to the Commission to take a leading role, mm. to either coordinate uh, members or to assume greater powers and to be able to get things done. If this doesn't happen, it will create frustration, and this, this would not be desirable. How has the war in Ukraine affected uh, Acciona's business so far, whether directly in terms of projects or indirectly uh, due to rising costs and logistics, etc.? What's, what's been the effect on, on the business? Okay, well, obviously it isn't making things any easier, that's clear, but that's happening in all sectors, not in renewable energy. For better or for worse, renewable projects are very complex, so this is a pretty big additional layer of complexity. Let me also say that things were already pretty difficult before the war. Of course. We had already some pretty substantial supply chain disruptions coming up. Um, our pre-war estimates were that uh, CAPEX required to undertake a, a renewable project was up like 11% perhaps, time to completion up six months. Right. And these indicators obviously will have increased with the present war. Do you expect our children to enjoy greater energy stability in terms of prices than we do now? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, the good thing, one of the many good things about renewables is that the price is pretty much known in advance and uh, it's, uh, it's only subject to the weather and the weather changes a lot day to day, but it doesn't change that much at least if we do things properly as regards yes. climate change, yes. it doesn't change that much year to year. So you can be pretty sure what renewable capacity you may have. Yes. And that should correspond to a very clear and relatively stable energy price once we have 
you know, 70-80% renewables in our electricity mix. So something better on the horizon for us, perhaps? Absolutely. Good. Thank you very much indeed for speaking to me. Thank you. Julian. I wanted to find out how policymakers are trying to meet the challenge of clearing the path for renewables. So I spoke to a representative of the European Commission to find out more. Hi, I'm Tim McPhee and I'm the European Commission spokesperson for climate action and energy. Thanks very much for joining me, Tim. I appreciate it. In your opinion, do you think the war has achieved what the slower moving crisis of climate change could not in terms of galvanising EU states to move faster on the transition to renewables in order to achieve energy security? Well, I think we see a lot of encouraging signs uh, on that front in in recent weeks. I think there's clearly a realisation that using renewable energy means that you're producing your energy domestically. It means you're producing your energy uh, at a lower and a more stable price. You're not vulnerable to the volatility of, of global fossil fuel markets. You're not vulnerable to interruptions of supply. You know, nobody can cut off the wind or the sun in the way they can cut off a, a pipeline. Um, so I think in that sense, that there's a realization that there is a security benefit as well from, from investing in renewables. And we see a lot of, uh, a lot of member states around Europe pushing further uh, in that direction. Now, of course, it's, it's not universal. Um, there are some countries where they see this as a reason to invest more in domestic fossil fuels, for example, you know, where there's a tradition of, of coal mining and using coal for energy. Um, but we, you know, we, we prefer to be to be optimistic and to see the, the glass as, as half full and think that what that means is perhaps there's a different kind of energy transition which will take place if people kind of decide to skip uh, the stepping stone between coal and renewables, uh, which is gas, you know, for, for many countries in Europe. There's an anticipation that they will move to gas before they move to renewables. And there's, you know, there's there's some people that are thinking that they might not want to take that step. So they might use coal for a bit, a little bit longer, but then get to, onto renewables faster than they were planning to. So we could see this, you know, as, as having some benefits. Yeah, I mean, that does sound like there is some cause for cautious optimism there. Do you sense a broader consensus among your European Commission colleagues on the need for a quicker transition than was the case previously? Yeah, in the Commission, it's very clear that this is the, the path that we are going to be promoting as one of our ways, um, one of the reactions to, to the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. And we came out with a plan, which we call the Repower EU plan, which is about reducing our dependency on, on Russian fossil fuels. Uh, and we've we've set a, a five-year timeline in which we, we aim to do that. And we're going to be putting on the table in the coming months uh, a more detailed plan of how we achieve that goal and also how we make a big reduction already by, by next winter in terms of the Russian fossil fuels that we use. But I mean, the European Green Deal uh, is is our headline policy and has been for for two and a half years now that, that this commission has been in office. So President von der Leyen, Vice President Timmermans, who's responsible for the Green Deal and our energy commissioner, Katri Simpson, have been driving this, you know, since day one. And they, you know, the response to, to the Russian invasion and to the risk of um, of security of supply has been to, to really double down and say that we we need to accelerate this transition. You know, if we want to get off Russian fossil fuels quicker, you know, it's not just about finding alternative um, fossil fuel imports in the short term for our security. It's about making sure we're less reliant on them in the medium term. 
can you give a, give me a flavor of how a quicker transition can be achieved in practice? How do you step up the pace? Yeah, I mean, this is something where it, it really gets down to, to the local level, to the national level, um, and to the, the project level, basically. Uh, you know, we know that that companies have investments that they want to make, that, comp- that countries have uh, have projects in in the pipeline which they're looking to support with investments. Um, so you know, we we hope to see those things accelerating a realization that that things need to hit the ground a bit faster, uh, that investments need to be unlocked, and then you also have the you know the the administrative barriers, the permitting processes that can sometimes slow down big energy projects, and and we're hoping that that they can be eased a little bit and we'll be putting on the table some some guidance as well in the in the coming months how member states can try and fast track permitting for, for renewables projects so that's you know some of the things that we can do well that's exactly it and i was just going to try and explore what policy levers you can actually implement uh, quickly and i mean whether there is broad agreement uh, because there are certainly countries in europe where permitting is a a, a huge issue where uh, and the wind industry often makes the point that they're ready to create all of this new capacity uh, and and yet they're being blocked essentially from from doing that are there m- many more policy levers which the european commission can pull or is this as you say something that has to actually devolve down to member state level and it's simply the european commission giving them direction well there's a bit of both i mean what we have in place already which has been agreed is the european climate law so that was adopted unanimously last year by all the member states so that sets our our long-term climate goals so becoming net zero by 2050 and already reducing emissions by 55%, at least 55% by 2030. So member states are bound um, to that path already. So that's the the kind of headline goal of of where we're going. And then the commission tabled uh, a dozen legislative proposals last summer in July, uh, what we called our Fit for 55 package um, to meet that 55% target for 2030. And that includes increasing the the ambition for, for renewables, Um, setting a new target of having 40% renewables in the energy mix by 2030. Um, So these are things um, so that the climate law is is already adopted and the Fit for 55 package is now going through the legislative process. So with the European Parliament and and the Council. So we, of course, are encouraging them to to adopt these laws as fast as possible because that just gives the added certainty to, to the investors. I think that's you know, we've seen a very clear um, change in direction in Europe in the last couple of years and investors realizing that we're serious about this and, and kind of unblocking investments and, and, you know, feeling more confident in these things. And the more of these laws that we get onto the statute books, I think the more reassured people will be. Um, and that deadline starts approaching. So you have to start moving faster. And, and do you anticipate that legislation going through with little or no objection um, from member states? Do you expect there to be sticking points over this legislation which is currently going through? Or, or do you expect, in the light of what's going on now, that actually it will sharpen the minds of all these member states and there'll be fewer objections? There's a lot of complexity. I mean, like I said, it's, it's a dozen legislative, legislative proposals, um, all interconnected uh, in some way, shape or form, which makes the whole process very messy. And of course, I mean, it's very easy for everybody to agree on a target. Um, It's a lot harder to agree on the measures uh, which get you to that target because you start seeing the impacts at national level on different companies, uh, on different countries. And that's when the the discussions get a bit tougher. But I think, 
you know, we we keep pushing. Uh, we're trying to be constructive in, in all of our talks um, with the, with the parliament, with members of parliament, with with the member states, and try and get things through. And I think you know we would love it if we were able to go to COP twenty seven in November this year with with this legislation already agreed. Um, but that's you know it's going to be a tough ask. How bigger parts do you think? new wind farms on and offshore will play in Europe's energy transition. Obviously, photovoltaic is incredibly important and uh, hydro in some areas as well. How big a part of the mix do you regard the wind industry to be in, in this European energy future? Well, it's going to be very significant. I mean, one of the, the first uh, strategies that we presented in, in um, autumn of 2020 was the offshore renewable energy strategy. Um, we're expecting wind capacity to grow from the level today, which is around 190 gigawatts, um, to maybe get up to around 440 by 2030, and up to around 1200 gigawatts by, by 2050. Um, so that's wind overall. And then for offshore, um, uh, we are expecting or, or hoping to achieve a capacity of around 60 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 and, and 300 gigawatts by 2050. So, yeah, we're, we, we're expecting that to play a, a very important role. Of course, there's, you know, there's, there's different uh, potential for wind in, in and offshore wind in particular, um, depending on geographical conditions. But, I mean, the North Sea, we know very well, um, already has a lot of offshore wind and, and has capacity for more. But also the Baltic Sea is currently underdeveloped and we see a lot of projects in the pipeline there, the Atlantic as well, and even the Mediterranean to an extent and, and the Black Sea. So, you know, it's definitely something where we see many of our member states having an interest. Um, yeah, and we, we really expect this to be an important part of the overall renewables mix. I'm sure the wind industry will be pleased to hear that. Tim, thank you very much indeed for speaking to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. Nice talking to you. And now, for the final word from my interviewees, I want to return to Vestas. What's the potential cost to Europe and beyond uh, and its citizens if politicians don't back up their words with firm action? If, what, what's the price of failure on, on this? The price of failure is full-on calamity here. We, we're talking about an, uh, approaching an unlivable world here. It's not small things. And, and that's why when you start turning it like that, the scenario we're looking into in a three and a half or four and a half degree Celsius uh, uh, global warming, that that scenario is is is, is completely uh, catastrophic. But that that's exactly what we're looking at. So with that in mind, it is hard for me to understand why uh, we put so many obstacles in the way of of producing green electrons. I just refuse to understand it. And, and I can only point inwards. I think we as an industry probably have underinvested in our lobbying association, in our public affairs activities, in our corporate communication departments. We have been sleeping as an industry and allowed much larger voices and budgets uh, among the incumbents to fight the, uh, you know, the war of opinions. And we, we, we can't allow that anymore. Uh, look at our public affairs departments among the larger companies in the renewable industry. We are so tiny and we spend so insignificant amounts of money in these areas. And, and I think now is the time to really, really step up. Uh, and it goes for every member. And I know it's hurting because there's a lot of companies in our industry not making a lot of money these days. But that should actually be an argument to step up budgets for public affairs activities and beef up our wind associations all across the board. 
So I really hope that companies in, in our sector now starts taking this seriously, because if we lose the war of opinion, we're looking at catastrophe for us, uh, not just in Europe, but on a global scale. And, and we can allow that. Thanks for listening to the Wind Power podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues and the innovations which are driving the wind industry.